2: If you love a brand or a product and it does something wrong, your brain's going to do the same thing. It's going to make up all kinds of excuses for it, which is one of the reasons that brand love is profitable for companies because people do forgive brands much more readily if they love that brand. However, if it gets to the point where it gets hard to make up excuses, then people feel betrayed and then they get even angrier than they would have if they had had simply a very pragmatic relationship.
0: Welcome to Think Business with Tyler, sharing our methods and strategies for success. Join in on our conversations with business owners as we highlight their triumphs and detail how they overcame the challenges they faced while continuing to grow and scale their business. It's time to think life, think success, and think business with your host, Tyler Martin.
1: Are you ready to dive into the world of branding and marketing? Then you're in luck, because today we have a very special guest on the show, Aaron Ahuvia. Aaron is not only a college professor, but also an accomplished author and true expert in his field. In today's episode, we will be exploring some exciting topics, such as the impact of our passions on our identity, the common pitfall of assuming we know our customers, how some brands truly succeed in creating an emotional connection with their audience. This is a conversation that you won't want to miss. So sit back, relax, and join us as we chat with Aaron about the fascinating world of branding and marketing. Let's chat with Aaron now. Hey Aaron, thanks for being on the Think Business with Tyler podcast show. How are you doing today?
2: I'm doing great, Tyler. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, thanks for being here. Hey, let's start out. I always love to start out with, can you share a little bit about yourself, what you do, and just things about you?
2: Sure. So, I'm a professor at the University of Michigan. I teach marketing. My uh, main assignment is at the Dearborn campus in the College of Business. I also have an appointment at the School of Art and Design at the Ann Arbor campus. Well, I study brand love. I actually was the first person to study that topic seriously from a scientific perspective many years ago and I'm very associated with that. Um, so I'm kind of the brand love guy and that translates into both like creative processes or how do you make products that people will love as well as from a branding uh, positioning perspective, How do you generate brand love in your marketing communications? and in the sort of overall positioning of the brand.
1: Very cool. Now you're also an author and you have a, a great book. I read it. It's called The Things We Love. And I wanted to get into that at first. What caused you to write this book? Like what, what was your, what were you hoping to accomplish when you started the journey?
2: I, as I mentioned, I've been doing a lot of sort of high level scientific research. I've been really pleased, you know, When I wrote the the first paper on this 30 years ago, there was one paper, and now you put it into Google Scholar, you put in Brand Love, I get 14,000-plus different papers by different academics on the topic. So it's really caught on, and there's a lot of interest in industry and in academia about it. But I wanted to get something that was more accurate out to the general public. There's a lot of stuff out there. Love is one of these topics that everyone feels they, they have a, a point of view on, which is great. You should all have a point of view on love, absolutely. You should also have a point of view on what team is going to win the Super Bowl. You know, that's also something you can have a point of view on. But uh, we don't, you know, our point of views, sometimes they're not based on that much. And I really wanted to connect into what this now rather abundant scientific literature has to say on this. And there's some really surprising things that people miss and that are sort of fundamental misunderstandings that come up again and again. And when, when, when people talk about this.
1: So let's start with defining what is a thing for the purpose of this book and just brand in general.
2: Right. So for the purpose of the book, the book casts a big net. So The book is the fundamental psychology that lies behind brand love, but it's not limited to brands in any way, shape, or form. The book talks about objects that you love, hobbies that you love, activities, places, nature, and brands, and products, and everything else. The core psychology, from your brain's perspective, it doesn't matter if you love a loaf of bread that you made in your kitchen or you love a loaf of bread that you bought at a bakery, you're still you know, loving a loaf of bread. So from a business perspective, it really does provide the, the core insights that you need to understand what's going on. But I also wanted really to make it something that would be fun to read and that would interest people who weren't just business people. So if you're someone who's a gardener and you want to know, why do I love gardening so much? Why do I love golf so much? Whatever the heck it is that you love to do, you can find that in there too. And It talks about why people love music and food and wine and clothing and all kinds of sports and pets and all sorts of stuff.
1: Yeah, I loved reading. Just to your point, like I'm going to jump ahead. I was going to talk about the dog one. Like for me, that probably resonated the most just in the sense that I'm a big dog person. Can you talk a little bit about you talk about people that own big dogs or small dogs, and maybe what it might imply about them as owners of those size dogs?
2: Yeah. So here's the, the one of the more surprising things about loving objects or activities or animals or what have you. And that is that the human brain is structured like a neurological, anatomical level that is fundamentally hardwired to sort out and divide up people and think about people one way and everything else in the world and think about all that stuff a different way. And loving something, love is kind of reserved for the people way of thinking about things. We do love all sorts of things, including our pets, but whenever we love something, It's because our brain is taking it and making it an honorary person. So if you love your car, your brain is kind of thinking about your car as if it was a person. And if you love your dog, it's because your brain is kind of thinking about your dog as if it was a person. And for dogs and cats and other pets, it's really easy to do this because... They just, they look like people and they kind of act like people and we definitely treat them. I know a lot of dog lovers, including myself. I have these long conversations with my dog that, of course, the dog has no idea what I'm talking about. I have a friend who describes this and she says, I like talking to myself when my dog is in the room. I don't like talking to myself when my dog isn't in the room. (laughs) So, you know, it's very much like that. However, people relate to dogs differently. And there is, you know, some actual research on this with small dogs versus big dogs And for the most part, people who have smaller dogs, your brain unconsciously is thinking about that dog as if it was a child. And if you've got a larger dog unconsciously again, your brain is thinking about that dog as if it was a friend. And you can see this in the way people treat their dogs. So you even have instances where, you know, one woman was saying she has two dogs. They are both fully adult dogs, you know, maybe five, six years old, both these dogs. One's a large dog. One's a small dog. She was like, well, the large dog, I let him off the leash because he can cross the street and he'll be fine. The small dog, I have to keep him on the leash because he's, you know, he he doesn't know how to cross the street properly. Right. The small dog he's you know he's just as old as the large one he's you know he's perfectly fine crossing the street but in your brain you think he's a toddler
1: right right it's interesting some of those examples i don't necessarily connect with like on a personal level but i do agree like like for me i'm big dogs there is like this element of surrogate friendship, I guess I would say, because they're bigger and they're more independent. I, they're, you're not as coddling them as much as maybe you might a small dog. So I do kind of see the research. It's, it's fascinating to me. There were actually several things. You know, another thing you talked about that I thought was interesting is when a product becomes so embedded in your life you cross the line almost where it becomes a part of you in a way. Like you use an iPhone example where you were holding the iPhone. And I think that's what you meant by it. And you were watching a movie and you're like, where's my iPhone? And I, we've all done that. And it, it becomes such a part of your life. It's almost like connected to you in a way.
2: Yeah. There's there's a whole bunch of examples of people, you know, talking to someone on their iPhone and telling the person they're talking to, I lost my iPhone. I don't know where it is, which is sounds crazy, but it's because that it it really becomes so much a part of their own sense of identity, their sense of themselves. They just stop being aware that it was even in their hand and it wasn't just like a part of their ear or a part of their hand or part of their body in this way. And that's, it turns out, actually a core mechanism to everything that we love. So if you love a person You are expanding your sense of identity and including that other person within that sense of identity. And the reason that that happens is that's why love evolved in animals and then in people is to get you to care for and protect and to be concerned about your children, your spouse, your siblings, or depending on the different animal species in humans, your friends, etc., and you can be concerned about someone who is not a part of your own sense of identity, but usually what has to happen there is you have to say, oh, I have a moral obligation to that person. I should like try and help them. Whereas with your own child, who is, you do, your brain treats your own child as if they were just a part of your body. When your own child needs something, you don't think, oh, I have a moral obligation. I should do something. It's just obvious, intuitively. Yeah, of course, they're hungry. i got to give them food, right? And that's That's what love does. And not to get too deep into the science, but there was a time hundreds of millions of years ago when all the animals that reproduced do it the way, say, fish do now, most fish. Like they'll lay a ton of eggs, the babies will hatch, but the parents have no role. But once the eggs are laid and fertilized, the parents swim off. They don't have any role after that in raising the kids. Whereas there's a lot of other animals where, of course, like humans, but also other mammals, many other birds, where the parents take care of the kids and feed them and protect them. Something had to happen in the brain of those animal species that would create that behavior. And the something that happened we call love. And the way it happened was those animals were already taking care of themselves and feeding themselves. And so if they saw their hatchling as part of themselves, then they would feed and take care of their hatchling too. So it became a way of creating this kind of caring for behavior. So everything that we love, we we think at a non-conscious level, again, is sort of part of who we are at some level. And so that's also true when you love an object or a brand or an activity. And if you want to see this in action, just think about this. If someone were to insult you, you would normally feel offended because that's what we feel for insulting. If, insulted. if you overhear someone and they insult the moon... Well, you don't feel offended because you aren't the moon. So why would you feel offended, right? Offense only happens if if you feel that you yourself are insulted. But what if someone insults someone that you love or something that you love? Like, or your home or your country, you know, or your family? You definitely feel offended. Why? Because those, you're seeing them as part of who you are.
1: There's this connection. In fact, I wanted to talk about that a little bit. You you bring it up in the book quite a bit, just how we create this connection. What creates that? It's you mentioned a few different things, could you share like what creates that connection where it almost transitions into a love of the of the service or product or whatever the thing happens to be?
2: Right. So, yeah, so a lot of that has to do with how does your brain go about this process of making it part of who you are? as, you know, as a person, making it sort of not something that is there, but something that is you uh, at a psychological, unconscious level. There's lots of different ways that this can happen. If you've ever made something yourself, you feel like it came out of you, almost the way you create a child, right? And so there's a very natural sense that you, like, put your work and energy into this, and it's part of you, and it feels very much a part of who you are. And that's true... A lot of times people will buy a product and then they'll work on it afterwards. They'll customize it. Even with your phone, you put the apps on that you want. You have your photographs on there and you've sort of mixed your own identity into the thing in the way that it becomes part of who you are. In other times, though, what really makes it feel part of you is that it reflects certain values that you have. So, these could be political or social values. That's one of the reasons a lot of brands now are starting to sort of take sides in the culture war in a way that they would never have wanted to do in the past. Yeah. Because the minute you take a side, you're like, oh my God, I'm going to, whatever side I take, I'm going to annoy a whole lot of people. Right. And so the normal rule is just don't do that. Now you're seeing more and more brands saying, no, I'm going to pick one side or the other. And a lot of them picking the more liberal side. There are other brands like this. Uh, Black Rifle Coffee is one example that's very, uh, you know, very much on the more conservative side in terms of you know creating that kind of identity. So sometimes it's it's that kind of a political identity, but very often it's not. Maybe it's an identity as someone who loves a certain team, or someone who's patriotic about their country, or someone who just cares about other people, a generous person. Apple has been super good at this. They have all this, all these ads. Like part of their ad is like, oh. Functionally, Apple computers are really good. They just work. You don't get frustrated. And that's very important. But there's another part of Apple, which is like, we're for the free thinking people, we're for the creative people. And they have those pictures of like the casually dressed, friendly looking guy that says, I'm a Mac. And then the uptight guy in the suit that says, I'm a PC. So it's very much, you know, and then you as the reader look at that. And Apple guessed correctly that more computer owners would, would uh, want to be seen as the casual guy than the guy in the business suit, which is also interesting because it probably wouldn't have been true a certain number of years ago.
1: Right, right.
2: <laughs> but but yeah, so they want that kind of identity. So one of the ways that brands generate love for their product is by having it fit with some sort of values or other kind of an identity that the consumer has. And there's there's lots of other things there that we could go into too, but that that's a, a good start. So
1: most of my audience is business owners. Oftentimes they're running businesses around one to 10 million in revenue. So I'd, I'd like to see if we could frame some of what the takeaways could be from a business owner standpoint. Is there anything that you could synthesize in terms of if you were reading this book or just the, the topic of it, what could a business owner take away? Like what what could they say, hey, this would be something that I should be thinking about in
2: my own business. Let me give you a couple quick ones. Sure. The first is that, Brand love really can work incredibly well. If you look again at, at Apple, it's just a perfect example of a company that has mastered this, and it's it is by far the most loved brand in America, and it's also the world's most profitable company. And so, if you have any doubt that this can work, just you know, look at Apple. However, it's not the right approach for every company in order for people to develop these kinds of connections with a brand the person has to care a certain amount about the brand if you're selling a product that people just don't care that much about they just they're about quality convenience and price then you sh- compete on quality convenience and price and and people aren't necessarily going to love your brand but that may be the best approach sometimes in those situations If you really try and, you know, become the next Apple, you're just going to waste a lot of resources and money because the consumer isn't necessarily interested in that. So that's, that's step one is to figure out, is this the kind of product that someone could have an emotional connection to? Step two is to think, okay, well, maybe it's not the product that they have the connection to. Maybe it's a person. And this is super important for entrepreneurs, especially in the like the $1 to $10 million Range. In that kind of a range, you and the other leaders and employees in your company are most likely, in most cases, you got a lot of direct personal contact with the people who buy from you. One of the main insights from the book is what uh, another consumer researcher, Russ Belk, called Person, Thing, Person. And it's this idea that At first, if you look at a relationship between a person and a product, say me and my cell phone, you think, oh, that's like their friends. There's like two of them in this relationship, the person, the cell phone, and they kind of interact together. But then when you look more closely, you always turns out to be that the product is really a connector that's connecting you to another person on the other end. So it's me, my cell phone, and then the people I call or text on the cell phone the people i see on social media on the cell phone etc it's all those other people that it connects me to and that one of the most powerful forces that leads people to love products and brands is the way that they connect to a person so sometimes it's going to be the brand like connects me to my friends, like my television, allows my friends to come over and watch the game, and so I connect with them, and my television is sort of a, a connecting agent, a person connector in that role. But it can also be a person at the company. So you probably know this, you know, dear listener, already. Um, you probably already realize that the relationships as an entrepreneur between you and your various clients are important. But I'm here to tell you that however important you think they are, they are more important than you think they are. (laughs) That that really is. Um, Even if the the client, even if you're selling the kind of product that's not a sexy product and people aren't going to fall in love with this product, you're selling cleaning supplies or whatever it is, people are going to have a relationship with you. And if you can learn to create strong relationships with your clients that are business relationships, but also friendships. People walk and chew gum all the time. You have both of those things going on at the same time. That is going to generate love for your company, even if the product itself isn't really capable of doing that.
0: We hope you're finding today's discussion to be beneficial to sculpting your own business success. Head over to 17minutemeeting.com for a complimentary 17-minute strategy session to help you identify and achieve your goals. That's available exclusively on 17minutemeeting.com.
1: Another day is here and you're ready
2: for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. to create strong relationships with your clients that are business relationships, but also friendships. People walk and chew gum all the time. You have both of those things going on at the same time. That is going to generate love for your company, even if the product itself isn't really capable of doing that. Do you kind
1: of get a free pass? And I'll tell you where I'm going with this. If you've got people that love your thing so let's use iphone as example you know iphone apple pushes excess consumption for example i was recently i was going to buy a product and i it's a niche product and the values of this company is all about. They tell you their product roadmapping and they say, look, we're not even going to release another version because we don't want to we don't want to create excess consumption. We don't want people getting rid of a bunch of electronics to buy new ones. And I, I it never really even dawned on me before of having kind of that value system in your own company. And then I was thinking, well, look at Apple. Like they are constantly pushing and, and I'm not faulting them for this. I'm not taking a position on this. I'm more of a question. They're they're constantly pushing out new products, which is you could argue is excess consumption. Do they get kind of a free pass because people are so in love with their products? Is that, is that a byproduct of it, or is it because they're so big? Do you have any thoughts around that?
2: It's it's a little bit complicated. Okay. So if you love something, it becomes part of your own identity. There are certain inherent built-in biases that people have about themselves. And so if something is part of you, those biases apply. Classic example here, you do something wrong, your brain without you having to constantly think about it goes into overdrive to make up excuses for why it wasn't your fault and you're just fine and it was the other guy or just an accident or whatever it happened to be if you love a brand or a product and it does something wrong your brain's going to do the same thing it's going to make up all kinds of excuses for it which is one of the reasons that brand love is profitable for companies because people do forgive brands much more readily if they love that brand. However, if it gets to the point where you it gets hard to make up excuses, then people feel betrayed. And then they get even angrier than they would have if they had had simply a very pragmatic relationship. If it was just a pragmatic relationship with a company and it does, it's doing things you don't like, we just stop buying from it. But if you've loved this company, then you feel like it cheated on you, it broke your heart, and people can get very angry. They can go out of their way to punish the company in all sorts of ways, and it can really come back to haunt the company in a bad way. So what's best is if you're going to try to earn somebody's love, the consumer's love, that can be a very profitable position for the company but you're making a commitment to that person, both in terms of your long-term business interests and just in terms of the kind of human being you want to be, right? You don't want to be a person that enters into a relationship with somebody else just to take advantage of them and then to like, you know, stick them when you when you can. That's not how you do it. As in your life as a person, you just don't want to be that person. So, if you're going to pursue this kind of brand love strategy, you are making a commitment that you're going to do right by your customers in a way that goes beyond what you might otherwise do. And if you don't do that, you will get away with it a little bit. It gives you a little bit of a buffer. But if you do it too much, boy, you can really get stung.
1: Got it. So it sounds like, to your point, like you can get away with it. But if if something doesn't go your way, kind of the bandwagon can change a little bit pretty quickly. Because yeah. there's this, there's this deep connection. And you almost to your point, I think you said like you're being cheated on or violated, for lack of better words. Right. Got it. Interesting.
2: When it gets to the overconsumption thing, here's a little interesting twist, which is loving things can lead to both reduced consumption and increased consumption, depending on what you love and why you love it. Hmm. So if you Love a brand, and part of that, it's like a fashion brand. And part of that is always having the latest. That's what kind of what it means to be a lover of that brand. Then that's going to lead to over, you know, increased consumption. However, if you love your car, you don't necessarily love the, the, the car maker, but you just love the car that sits in your driveway. That actually leads to reduced consumption. People who love their car they take care of it longer. They don't want to sell it because they love it. They don't need a new car. They love their current car. And so they actually hold on to it longer, and it can lead to reduced consumption. And that may sound like a bad thing for the company, but it actually could be very profitable for the company because all the time that they're holding on to their car, they are telling everyone who will listen and many people who won't listen about how wonderful their car is. And how fantastic it is. And you can really you can end up selling more cars in the long run because people are just so in love with and excited about the car uh that they have.
1: It's almost like a walking billboard. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. So,
1: hey, in terms of uh the book, going back to the book, when you started writing the book and when you ended up. Was there anything that you took away that either caught you off guard or what you expected and what you ended with was totally different? Anything that ended up uh, surprising to you,
2: I guess, is what I would say. Yeah. Now this I it took me 10 years to write this book. Wow. So this is an insight I had maybe nine years ago, <laughs> but but it was a big insight, and it's the core of the book. Uh and I'd been working on this stuff for 20 years prior to that, and this it had never quite come across to me. It really is that the human brain sorts out things that are people from everything else, and that love is part of the thought processes and part of the brain that deals with people. And that in order to get people to love a product or a brand, they have to see it as human in some way. Now, in the book, I go into a lot of different ways that this happens. It doesn't necessarily mean that they like actually think it's a person. That's That's not it. But you have to get their brain to think about it the way the brain thinks about people, right? Get it into that sort of slot in their brain. And that was really surprising. And that sets up a whole other level of challenges and also can be a dividing line. So if a company is thinking, is this right for us? Is this something we want to pursue? One question is, is that going to be possible for our company? And sometimes the answer is no, and sometimes the answer is yes because of the product is that way. Sometimes the answer is yes because yeah, they're going to associate the product with the people who work at the company. So they're not really going to see the they're not going to see the exact product as a person, but they're going to see the relationship with our company has a relationship with a person. And that works just as well. Interesting. So, hey, I always
1: love to end the show with uh, a life tip or a business tip that you can share with us. Maybe something you've learned along the way of your journey in life. Is there anything you have off the top of your head?
2: Other people are not you. That's why they're called other people. It is so easy to do this. There's scientific research on this that I could spend a long time talking about despite knowing the scientific research, I still do it myself. It's very natural to assume that other people are more like you than they are. That the arguments that you think are convincing, they're going to find convincing. That the product that you think is fantastic, they're going to find is fantastic. And it's just not so. And so if I had any one tip for people, it's, yes, you've heard it a million times, get to know your customers. But Really, yes, get to know your customers and keep in mind as you do it, keep, they're not you. And look for the places, notice the things that make them different from you, because that's going to be the stuff that you will miss under normal situations and will overlook to your detriment if you don't keep a special appeal for it.
1: Yeah, that's a great one. That's a great one. So, hey, your website... The things we love.com. Once again, thethingswelove.com dot com. I'll put that in the show notes under thinktyler.com. If people wanted to reach out to you anywhere else, is there any, anywhere you'd like them to go or is that the best spot?
2: Oh, that's that's fine. Um, okay. they can find me at the University of Michigan, of course, but the things we love.com, it's a great way. The other thing I'm gonna mention uh is Amazon named uh my book, one of the top 20 business books of 2022. Nice. So I'm very proud of that. And the other way to reach out to me is just go to Amazon and take a look at the book.
1: I owe you a review too, so I'll be sure to do it. One thing I I do really appreciate about the book, it's not really a business book. I mean, I think you could walk away with it being a business book, but there's just, I think anyone could read it because it's like you go through it and the, the stories and the things that you tie into... You find yourself going, oh, that's me. Oh, that's not me. Oh, that's me. And it kind of ties in with your tippy even, which is kind of funny because you start to read some things and it's like, oh, that's not necessarily how I would think. Or, oh, that is the way I would think. So it's a lot of really good stories. It's a fun. It reminds me of some other books I've read where they're, you just get immersed in, in waiting for the next story or the next comparison, and it keeps you reading to the next page.
2: Oh, that's very kind of you to say. That was certainly the intention. In a loose way, I sort of modeled it on... Uh, Malcolm Gladwell's book, The Tipping Point, which is always one of the best selling quote business books, but most people read it have no idea that it's a business book. They're just reading it because it's an interesting book. And I know that a lot of business people, you know, you, you hear about some business book and you're like, oh, that sounds really useful. And then you go and buy it and it just sits on your nightstand unread forever. I didn't want that to happen. So I really wanted to write a book that if you can get you know, to start reading it and see what you think. I had a, a, a student come and tell me the other day that her mother found the book on the kitchen counter and started reading it and came to her and said, where did you get this book? I read the whole thing. And she said, that was that was from my professor. She said, really, a professor? So there you go.
1: (laughs) Even professors can be cool. Well, hey, congratulations on the top 20. That's a big deal on Amazon. Uh, Thanks for being on the show and uh, really appreciate. Maybe next time you have another book coming around, I'd love for you to visit again. So thanks again.
2: Tyler, it was my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: Okay, take care,
0: Andy. Cast.